Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Thanks for joining me for the second episode of The Blank Canvas with Kate Seberano. As a 14-year-old in 1980, she was runner-up on Search for a Star. She then won Battle of the Bands in Melbourne as a 15-year-old with a band called Expose. She then hit the big time fronting a pop-funk band, I'm Talking, five consecutive hit singles and a platinum debut album which I bought on cassette and had on high rotation in my Corolla station wagon at the time in Sydney. But that's another story. This led to a swag of countdown awards for both the band and Kate. The year was 1986 and Michael Hutchins from In Excess won Most Popular Male Artist and Kate won Most Popular Female Artist. Kate's barely drawn breath since, racking up 27 albums over 35 years whilst effortlessly moving around genres and, in fact, pioneering the genreless career path. Her latest album, with the prescient title, The Dangerous Age, was written and recorded virtually before that became a thing in 2020. This collaboration with Steve Kilby and Sean Sennett has been one of the most acclaimed albums of the year. Her work, her craft and her vision are now imbued in our collective DNA. Please welcome to The Blank Canvas... Kate Rogers, only kidding. Kate Sobrano. Are you more nervous doing this podcast with me than any other person no, I'm not do an interview with? I'm not nervous at all. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Kate Sobrano, welcome to the blank canvas. <laughs> pretty funny, isn't it? Yeah. Do you realise you're guest number two? Yeah. Is, is yeah. that okay that you're not number one? I, for whom I gave up the number one spot for, I'm actually okay with that. Okay. And, of course, unless you change your mind. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unless suddenly you kind of arrive at number ten. I'm so glad that you chose to do Gypsy Rogers first. I mean, really, that was just the best thing you could have ever possibly have done. Ah. Gypsy Rogers? Yeah. You should have had Gypsy Rogers. You'll, you'll interview your daughter, I'm sure, at some stage. Okay, yeah. But she's number one in your heart. She's number one in my heart. I understand that and no. I, I'm all good with that. So do you realise we've been together 30 years next year and this is the first time we've ever done an interview together? Well, certainly interviewed each other. <laughs> first time I've interviewed you and you've never interviewed me. Yeah, that's true. Oh, but no, because when we've had to do EPKs, You've always had to be the one oh. asking me the questions, even if you weren't specifically asking them to directly find the answers for you. You needed to do it for either Sony or you needed to do it for a record company. Or Yeah, gotcha. You know, you've done those before as a director. Yeah. Okay, no, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's never – this kind of feels different because it's like a, I guess, a long-form chat. Yeah. And it's actually – this is – this is more intimate and more personal. There's no other agenda no. other than you and I just to have a chat together and yeah. we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I kind of like the idea of that. Yeah. Do you remember the first time we met and what was the first thing that came to mind? Is that something you remember? I remember that I was living in Davis Avenue in South Yarra 
And by that location, and for anyone who's from Melbourne, the geography of that says a lot about being a Melbourne person. Macy's was one of the first gigs I ever played at as a 15-year-old where um, rumour has it that um, the the models walked in during the sound check. I was about 15 and James Freud said to his manager at the time, he said, that chick there, she's a superstar. And that's actually, that's what James told me afterwards. He said, I walked in, there was this little girl with a striped boater and um, – So was, Macy's was in South Yarra. Macy's was in South Yarra and Expose was the, one of the first of the two gigs. We did the Man Erica Hotel and then we did Macy's, which was on the corner of Turak Road and Davis Avenue. In Melbourne. In Melbourne. And so I've lived almost strategically in the heart of the CBD around all of the hotspots of live music in Melbourne. For instance, Kerr Street was just 100 yards down the road from the Black Cat in, in Brunswick, in Brunswick Street. It's okay, you can get up there and <laughs> just, young sporting legs go crick. Um, uh, the Black Cat was the first place where I got involved with jazz and playing jazz music live. So that was the Black Cat was before the Night Cat. That was the first place where you could go and listen to music. You could drink coffee. Um, that Pellegrini's, Mario's, they were the few places in Melbourne that served music, fashion and culture. Gotcha. So I was 14 when I worked there. But um, And then other places down in St Kilda, I lived down in St Kilda as well, right in the heart of, of live music, Melbourne. Gotcha. So anyway, you asked me the question, what did, I, what did I think of when I first met you? Well, I was actually, when I very, very first met you, I was going out with Steve Kearney. And we were, had been in a very long relationship, which ended up going for about five years, actually, from between the ages of 17 and 23. And um, I'd given over the keys to my house where I was living with Ken West, who, better known for the big day out, Vivian Lee and Ken West went on to become promoters. Um, but I was living with Ken and I'd lived with Ken and his wife not only at Davis Avenue, but we'd lived on Chapel Street upstairs in a fantastic sort of tenement up there. And we had also lived in um, uh, St. Martin's Lane, famed for the St. Martin's Theatre. So, again, strategically all around theatre and music. And even in St. Martin's Lane, I'm going to have to direct, because I don't even know if you know any of this, but the first place I ever heard harmonies was in St. Martin's. um, There's a little church and there was a combination of punk and pop artists and Neil Finn and um, called the big choir that sang dirgy kind of Nick Cave old blues songs and we did gigs at like Inflation and the Ballroom. Um, and we were there, it was my first time ever with an ensemble of people where I heard harmony, but there you go. Um, cut back to where I started, which is Davis Avenue. And I'd exited the building. It was a sunny day. Um, I'd just recently had, I believe, my 21st birthday in that house, we dug up the backyard, had a luau, and then I was leaving for London. So timed with my septet going gold, you know, and we were going to go off to London. I was going to follow Steve Kearney. Steve Kearney was going to go off to Edinburgh. He was going to win the Perrier Award as the most successful comedian um, performance, live performance artist. And as I was leaving – I left and for some reason I, I had to feel I was on a bike or the friend that you went to meet was on a bike. You were on a motor bike. scooter? 
You're on the back of a motor scooter or a motorbike. I thought it was a push bike. Oh, I thought it was a motorbike. I don't yeah. know who would have had a motorbike at yeah. that stage. And, and I, I saw you walk in with Jenny Clopper. Or out the Jenny, front of the house and we the saw you house. out on the street. And we said hi. And I, But I, it was from 40 feet away. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you even. Oh, I didn't really clock you. No. I thought you, that, you were just telling, I, I yeah. just remember the first time I, because Jenny was quite um, stellar, like she was quite an iconic sort of model of that time and, and of that gen- generation. She was on the cover of many magazines and, and she had the look of that time. So I, I was pretty impressed by her actually. Um, and I can see myself saying, see ya, I'll see you in a couple of months. Like literally gave over my house. Yeah, wow. To Jenny. And then apparently then you stayed there in my bed <laughs> with said Jenny Clopper. And, and half of Melbourne was wearing my clothes, apparently, from all of the people that came and freeloaded during that first three months of uh, her living there as well. So that was kind of fun. That's cool. But that's what I remember. That's when okay. I first remembered you. And, okay, so fast forward, I think probably about three, four years yeah. or something, we met again. Yep. And I had broken up with Steve. Yep. And I'd started the touring of Brave with the Ministry of Fun and Brave the album. That's right. Yeah. And the drummer was my boyfriend at the time. And um, and we went on to continue a big tour, big national tour, just the year before I met you or the year and a half. And then we went to New York and had recorded the sequel to Brave, which was Think About It. Right. And we'd come back to Melbourne, um, this cosmopolitan community of artists. We'd been working for months like Paisley Park, doing choreography, the dance steps, and all the while there was trouble afoot. And on the first day, I believe, or just thereabouts of this tour we'd been preparing for for months, he dropped me. And I nearly broke my ankle that night in a dance, so I couldn't dance through the whole tour. And we started that tour with all of that, devastated, heartbroken, broken ankle, and in walks Lee Rogers to take over from a director who didn't, um, show up or couldn't show up for the State Theatre and in you were brought in by said drummer to come and uh, direct the concert. Wow. And do you remember what you might have thought of when we met then? Any recollection of that? Well, it, it's funny. I'm hearing my daughter just very gently walking down the stairs as she's <laughs> trying to be super, super quiet in her converse, <laughs> um, which is great. Um, I would never have thought that, that, that us would have ended with her, which is the most amazing thing of all. Our greatest production. Our greatest production ever. Um, but I do remember you well because I had had, um, in the year that I won Best Female in the Countdown Awards, there was a lift out and Dolly had done a huge spread of musical-styled fashion. I think it was actually in the Countdown Awards program. That's right. It was a That's it what was a, a an ad campaign for Grace Brothers. Oh, was it? I thought it was yeah. Dolly. No, I thought it was initially, but no, it was actually Grace for Brothers. Grace Brothers, who were the sponsor of the Aria Awards that year. Oh, the Countdown Awards. Wow. And it was right through the program. All of these, you know, photos and in and di- they had you like mocked up as musicians, which is why. I really, I really loved. I've always been a big fan of like um, the specials, and I loved um, that British post-punk um, community. And I liked that kind of 
lad the, that played music, whether it was ska music or, you know, and, and – I cheated. As it turned out, I had zero musical well, talent. Well, I didn't know that at the time, but there you were, you know, strapped around all these different instruments looking like you knew what you were doing and I was like, I'm going to meet that guy. He looks really cool. <laughs> Uh, and just goes to show you actually just how imposing fashion is on music, how it completely yeah. brings you into the space that you need to be in to appreciate that music is not just the sonic part of it, but music is culture, music is the way you feel about your life and how you identify it yeah. at that time in your life. Yeah, it's true. It makes sense. So it's nearly 30 years. What got me as I was thinking about doing this today it just seems such a, a a major milestone and so I just found myself asking questions about oh my god how did we how did we manage to do that it seems so unlikely at so many times um, well, along the way I think you and I have eclipsed our own personalities many many times over um when we met as I said you know I was a young punk and I say punk because I'd been chasing a dream to be like Annabelle Lewen from Bow Wow Wow I was very British centric and had worked by that stage with people like, well, I'd been in London. I worked with the producer who'd done Seals Records at the time and, you know, all and even before that, Malcolm McLaren. Malcolm McLaren. I'd worked there and um, we worked with, yeah, some of the most famous British courting artists. And I was, I thought of myself as like, you know, the ingenue ready for someone's creation, someone to come along and do something with me. And then you were skater punk and you were making video clips and surfing and the Northern Beaches story, quite, quite different. I mean, you couldn't find the complete opposite to my Melbourne, Euro, Fellini films, French cinema, Valhalla, you know, that whole culture. And I just wanted to be like – yeah, I was smoking cigarettes and wearing berets and striped boaters and and you were wearing rude boy T-shirts and hessian pants and Converse sneakers. I mean, really, it was a fashion thing. Yeah, it was. So then we meet. Yeah. And then suddenly life is a little more serious and, you know, that sort of culture needs to be addressed because you're going corporate. And I was shocked when we met because I was expecting this sort of subversive punk and then you there at Video Link in your suit and becoming Vision all Link. Vision Link. I was getting out of the party scene and going more corporate and going getting more professional and you were like, hang on. Hang on. This, I, I didn't I buy fell in love this. with this kind of edgy <laughs> bad boy. It's true. It's it's true. Sorry no, no, to but I understood. You, darling. No, 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 no. You've never. No, we've always managed to find each other on the field and change and allow. I think probably the success to our relationship most is that you and I have allowed each other to change and not held each other to account to who we were. Like, hang on a minute. You used to. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You know, it's like who cares what you used to do ten years ago. I mean, every day we're changing to serve the current condition and we haven't got a clue about where we're headed tomorrow. So we're only making it up anyway. We may as well create it together and make it up along with someone who you trust. Like you never call me in and go, you never call me up on something and hold it out as a source of ridicule. Oh, my God, look what you used to wear. Like you're just not that guy. You're the safest person to be artistic around and and I think I'm the same for you. I think I really, we check each other's authenticity and we know each other well enough to know when, 
you know, we're bullshitting and then we call each other out, but we don't do it with ridicule. We don't do it with comedic force, which is like, let's yeah. laugh at your failings. Yeah. You and I just never do that to each other. Yeah, it's not joking and degrading. No, it? no, never, ever, ever. It's more like, wow, good work. You changed that thing. That was good. That wasn't working for you and you stopped doing it. Like yeah. heroin was never good. Don't know. You never took heroin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I think it's like nobody's perfect and we all make mistakes, but we've allowed each other to make up for those and go, okay, all right, well, yeah, what are you going to do about that to handle that? And you Well, know, actually, I blah, wasn't blah, even blah. thinking about mistakes. I don't think either you or I live our lives based on that theory that we all make mistakes and then you get experience and you change. Actually, we've just actually causatively in my mind said, oh, that's not working for me. I'm going to change my mind. It's true. Like yeah. I don't. I think that you and I um, think that what you and I both do is fairly, it's the best we can do at the time. Yeah. It's not wrong or right. It's just the best with what we can do at the time. Yeah, good point. I mean, even even alcohol abuse, which was rife in my life, it, not specifically with me, but a lot of my musicians have died from alcohol-related diseases and you've had a lot of drug culture around you. Even at the time, I would venture to say that at that time you thought it was the right thing to do to stay in that community by doing that. Yeah. So is it wrong? That's my point. Yeah. And I don't think you and I have made each other guilty for those things. Instead, we just evolved and went, huh, that's actually not right. It's not the greatest good for what we'd ultimately like to do, right? Yeah, that makes sense. I heard a, um, I read something about American Indians, which I loved, and I think you and I have tried to do this with Gypsy most of her growing life. But Our daughter know, Gypsy. Yeah. When, um, like, for instance, when a child does something bad, like say they go and, you know, yeah. set the teepee on fire, then old wise Big Bear says to little baby bear, oh, you're trying to keep the family warm. That's that's really great. So that's great. Yeah. Rather than making them feel guilty for having done something wrong, which then only serves to now instruct the child that there are things you can do wrong in this life. Yeah, so just put their attention on what's right about something rather than make You've them wrong. You've only ever done that with me as a partner. Absolute success story on that, which is like, Okay, so that didn't work, but what you do best is blah. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't do that for you. I know I'm not as gracious. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very one-sided relationship here. No. And it takes sometimes a third party just yeah. to describe no. my failing. No. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true. You've been an incredible collaborator and friend and soulmate and everything I could Hope and I'm actually a champion a of yours for the art part of you, your art bone. You definitely And you are. are you you need you need a lot of support sometimes because you're a very creative and a very artistic person who was raised in a much more um, traditional setting where it wasn't necessarily encouraged to be flamboyant or to be expressive or emotional. It's true. You're yeah. right. Hey, um, Something occurred to me as we were talking about that and all the different um, adventures and travel and people we've met, like we've spent a lot of time apart over the years. We've yeah. both followed our dreams and our careers. We've collaborated together on a lot of things, but we've also followed our individual projects and careers. And probably, I mean, we've probably spent, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of, or maybe half the time together and half the time apart over the years or I'd maybe t something like that because a lot of time, not so much now, but over the years a lot of time apart 
and we've worked with a lot of interesting people, a lot of charismatic people, creative people, you know, attractive people, whatever. Have there been many of those sliding door moments where you've worked with someone maybe in a show or a band and you've kind of fallen in love with them through the course of that and you've gone, oh, my God, what if? Has there been many of those? Look, I suppose, I mean, don't people fall in love and – I mean, I fall in love with talent. So that's unquestionable, absolutely. I mean, I remember working and watching Eddie Perfect on the stage during South Pacific – his intelligence. Towering intelligence and talent. Yeah. Powerful, nimble, yeah. articulate, funny. Yeah. He owned space and consequently you can see how that then goes into his field of the arts where he just yeah. has conquered Broadway. Yeah. And that was that was an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, fallen in love. There have been musicians that for a long time that I thought because of the creative nature and the romantic part of making music, you can almost feel as though it's the same feeling as love, like that kind of (gasps) – but it's never for the person specifically. It's for the creation, the act that you're in. I'm sure directing when you've had those magnetic faces and they're doing their thing on the camera, aren't aren't you obliged to fall in love? Yeah, you, you do in that moment. You've You're got completely, to. you know, in the moment with right. that performance and and you're the witness for them. You have to be fully there and duplicating what they're doing. Exactly. And it, and it is intoxicating at times, isn't it? Oh, and there's nothing finer than the actor who's turned you on through the camera that way and then if the director should go and approach him afterwards, they're like, yeah, what? Yeah. And just it's just turned off. Um, I did have that experience I told you early on in the piece um, when I was doing the audition with oh, – maybe I shouldn't say it. Oh, it's okay. Go no, for I it. Remember when um, – not that I did anything with him, but that are you going to edit this or is this just going straight we're, out like – We're not going to edit on that thing. I won't say it. Like one of Australia's most um, famous actors and he's, he's a rascal. Yeah. And he's an incredibly talented actor. And I had a film that I'd been cast for – and I, it was going to shoot in Italy and it sounded like my greatest dream. And we just sort of started. Um, well, I went to the audition and he'd been called in late to the audition as a sort of coup. The director was like, oh, my God, we've got blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. So in walks blah, blah, blah and sets to work in a very intense love scene. And it was a hot summer's day and we're in a house with no air conditioning and I had a silk dress on and by the end this dress was – I was wet with perspiration and I was I, I was taken over. Like I was in the scene in a way that was sort of dangerous because I was losing my mind and losing my – I thought my heart, which I wasn't. I was actually just completely a fan and that's when I realised actually that I may never be able to act with that kind of truth because that truth is dangerous and he wasn't in that truth but I was responding like a fan and I realised that's a part of my culture too. I'm on the stage and I'm fearless and I'll take it to whatever length that it should go for an audience member to feel it and feel deeply invested emotionally but when you walk off the stage, that's it. That's the end of that story. Yeah. You must end it there otherwise it's not ethical. And, and he was great. Uh, needless to say, I didn't get the part. And that's a good thing. 
<laughs> because, you know, God help us. We wouldn't be here today if I'd got the part in Italy doing that love scene with said blah, blah, blah. In the Colosseum. It would not have happened. Quite honestly, it would not have happened. And maybe I would have fulfilled the other prophecy which I had for myself, which I thought by this age I might have been married and divorced at least three times. <laughs> I thought with my temperament, my creativity, I would have to have like, you know, at least had three goes at it. But here I am in a very stable relationship with a wonderful daughter who's flourishing and who knew? We just couldn't have written it this way. Absolutely. Let's go back to that. You mentioned um, band members and drugs and having lost a bunch of band members along the way. And also, I think a lot of your contemporaries, Michael Hutchins, Chrissy Amphlett. We just lost another one today, actually. That's why probably wow. you and I have been doing this. And I think most people think of me as being very giddy and laughy and positive and chirpy. But actually, today, I'm not feeling that way today. I'm actually just responding to the times in the world around me right now and, yeah, I'm uncharacteristically sober and that's because, like you say, someone of my group, my peer group, yeah. passed today again with everything ahead, yeah. a whole life, a whole career and as was the same with all my friends that died yeah. over the last 25 years. You're a bit of an anomaly in the music business because you've never really gone down the drug path that's sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll is kind of part of the cliche in a way. How have you managed to avoid that and has there been times where you wish you could have just recklessly gone down that path and, you know, lost yourself and got that kind of cool that comes with it, if you know what I mean? Because mm. it's like a badge of honour in rock and roll and it's almost, you know, lauded on many levels. Mm. How have you navigated that? Well, the circle's complete because Gypsy was describing to me some really interesting things that she's facing at this age, and she's 16 now, that apply to the way I think about this because it was at that age that I made the choice that I perhaps won't be a risk taker. I will sit on the sidelines and have a look and see what this culture does to itself. Um, you only have to see a few people and really fucked up and vomiting on themselves or choking on their own dinner that night and uh, wasted too many times to realise it doesn't look good um, and then to hear a couple of them where they accidentally medicated in a way that they never came back from. Um, I had one piano player who dropped acid once and he says he's never been the same since. And I was also very young so I got exposure to a lot of older people who I considered to have more sense but as it turned out I realised they actually were quite naive and they weren't at all educated like I'd been. Because my grandmother was a naturopath and she understood about how the body and the mind were connected. She thought that there was a certain grace to it and that if you mess with the grace, you get problems which last with you for a lifetime, which makes complete sense now. Like finite amount of brain cells, for instance. That was a big enough thing for me to risk losing. I was thinking I've only got the few that I have already. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what if I lose those and I'll be truly like the dimmest dimwit because I didn't rate myself very much as a teenager. So anyway, the conversation's coming up with Gypsy. She's saying, you know, well, when is the safe part to try something? What is safe? And I said, well, why don't, rather than me answer the question for you, how about I just give you all the information and then with knowledge you will be safe in the choices you make for yourself. Yeah. And in the end you can only be your own boss of you. I would think that authority can only serve 
to make you want and seek and desire it more because I've only ever desired what was prohibited. <laughs> we have a puppy visitor. We have my son. We have a small boy. It's okay. Can you get close enough to the mic with the puppy there? Sure. <laughs> he missed me. Uh, is that okay, Rin? <laughs> okay. That's cool. Yeah. I don't know. With yeah, no, 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 I got the picture. That makes sense. Do you look back because you seem to have been pretty wise when it comes to this because here you are. Okay, I think we've got to get rid of the pup. Come, <laughs> come and grab the pup, Gypsy. <laughs> I the, talk about a show, dog. The like, puppy is on Kate's to... lap. And... Look at this. He's like so <laughs> wanting. Yeah. Yes, good yeah. idea. Oh, I... <laughs> yeah, quite happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's not biting you. Okay, goodbye, goodbye. Oh, look at him looking at me like, oh, my God. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you something that I think Gypsy and I are also similar with is that for show people, we're actually really shy. I'm, I'm actually a bit too shy, really, to put myself in a social situation where I was that wild. I had wild friends. I had some wild friends. Right. And I thought that I was so shy that I couldn't bear the thought of finding myself socially in an environment and making a massive error and saying something stupid and having them all laugh at me. Yeah, gotcha. And that's pretty much how Gypsy relates to those conditions. It's just like I don't want to be the, the, the source, the object of their ridicule. Yeah. But as it turns out, I think um, when I look at it back now, I think, well, maybe I was just um, protecting a part of me that I think had yet to evolve into this. Like I've just only just now starting to hit my stride as a person, as an artist. Yeah, well, I'd have to agree with that. I think you probably at the peak of your powers as a songwriter and as an artist. And this year, in fact, your latest album, The Dangerous Age, it's up there with my favourite albums that you've ever made. As it turns out, it was a pretty uh, incredible title, The Dangerous Age, being that 2020 has turned out to be exactly that. Yeah, what's even more prophetic about it, it was done virtually. It was the first of this digital age to be recorded in three different states. How did that happen? Well, the drafts of all the poems came from Queensland and Sydney because Kilby lives in Sydney and Sean's in Brisbane. As in um, Steve Kilby. Yeah. yeah, and they came to me just when Gypsy had left to go to school overseas. So there was a great hole in my heart because on the one hand you want your kids to go and experience life and it was by her desire to experience life and in that place. This was overseas for a couple of years boarding and I was having to confront the end of that. I mean, I don't think if this is time coincident completely, but we were sort of hedging towards it and needing to occupy my entire thoughts. So I went back to the piano and I started doing scales again. This is pretty much how it started. And I was describing my life and Sean was saying to me, maybe we should put together like all of um, the greatest unreleased hits of yours and put together all the songs we'd written 12 years ago and maybe all the B-sides that you love and call it, you know, pinups for Kate Sobrano, all of your choices, all of your favourite songwriting pieces. Sean, Sean Sennett. Yeah. And he said, and by the way, I've got some lyrics too. I thought maybe if you're interested, you could fashion some songs around it and compose the music. So he sent me these lyrics and they lay dormant in my mailbox for about a couple of months and I was keening for the loss of Gypsy and I sat down at the back in the studio one day when there were hours to waste and started writing music to some of the poems he sent. 
at that stage I didn't know that Steve Kilby had penned them as well and I didn't know which were whose and, you know, whatever. I just started writing the music and I found that I was plumbing a kind of nostalgia in me. I didn't uh, or I haven't had an opportunity to actually get to, which is music, early Crowded House, the music of my youth, 10cc. Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, Supertramp. These were artists at the time in the 80s, young male, a lot of them, had this sort of sadness that was kind of beautiful to me. What more can a poor boy do, Neil Finn, Tim Finn, really? I got you even. They had this Beatlesque kind of, and I didn't have the Beatles. I found them later in my late 20s, early 30s. They were obviously listening to songs like The Long and Winding Road and Yesterday and Blackbird and all these songs that were, they were sort of like an insight to the heart and the soul of a young man. And so I thought, I'm going to write this as a young man in a time of my life where there's still so much promise, so much to be had, and yet there's still so much unfulfilled. So I started writing like a young man. And I believe that The Dangerous Age was my response to all the lyrics of these young men, or not so young. I know that Steve Kilby's, <laughs> he will be the, the oldest living infant. He is Benjamin Button. Uh, and I don't know what it is he's smoking, but whatever it is, it takes him all the way back to, what, 1925? Um, and Sean Sennett is a Renaissance man because he's a writer. And as a writer, he's equipped with all the words and the phrases to make things seem beautiful, even if they're harsh. So I was getting these poems. They're beautiful. They're sad. They're harsh. They're loving. And once I started, I sort of couldn't stop. And from that place, the soul of a young man, I wrote all the music over a period of 18 months. I just kept going back out there when I felt sad and I'd just start writing again without anyone watching or listening or I didn't have a record deal. I'd been ignominiously sort of dropped from my deal just a couple of years before that and was in this age, you know, you kind of going, well... All right. So I didn't think I'm going to necessarily get to be Paul Kelly or Nick Cave or Neil Finn anytime soon. So I'm just going to write these songs as if I were them. Your middle age indie rock record. My middle age indie rock crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in the end, it was great to do it in that way because I had asked no permission. I wasn't looking for anyone's approval, I didn't show anybody any of the work. I didn't even send it back to Sean for his approval, actually. Instead, I just went straight into the studio with a very dear friend of mine, Rod Bustos. And actually, he and I share the exact same bloodline of music truth, from Queen to Bowie to Beatles to, you know, you name it, all of these bands that we both love. We were able to say, okay, I'm going to write a song and I want it to be like blah, 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 and I want the backing to be blah, 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 and we're going to put a bit of Serge Gainsbourg loop here and then we're going to get some strings and then I want you to grab... Um, you know, that kind of like all those BVs, those cascading BVs in, I don't know, I could name the songs. And it was like sort of going into a lolly shop and picking from every aisle your favourite lolly. I love it because it has the timeless sound of a lot of those great bands, but it also has a distinctly Australian feel to it. Mm. Well, I guess the other thing I was aware of in the lyrics that there was a lot of space in them. And when I think of space and I think of my Australia and my Australiana, my response to it is like a country singer sings about the West. I sing about Australia, I think about the desert and I think about WA and my favourite writers, Tim Winton, Peter Carey. He always put us on these great journeys which would lead you into the middle of nowhere and you'd have this sort of vertiginous feeling of being stuck inside and yet you're completely without 
anything, any obstacle, any boundary, you know, like Birdsville, for instance, where you do 360 and you can't see anything that's just equal earth and sky and yet you've never felt more trapped. And I, I wanted to get that fantastic feeling of either looking at life from way up high, feeling a little bit sick for it, or looking at life from way inside, not getting being able to get out, yet there was nothing but space around me. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. I'm thinking of the song All Tied Up right now as you're describing that yeah, to me. exactly. It's probably my favourite song on the record, but, I mean, there's so many great songs. One I, week it's this one, another week it's another one. But tell me about All Tied Up and is that well, one that is where the, the lyrics arrived and you sat at the piano? Like, well, tell you, us how that came about. You're hearing the space that I've heard in the lyric, yeah. but also when I saw – that movie that was made, I hadn't read the book, which was Winton's Brief, about yep. the surfer culture, I could really identify with that because we've lived that culture, you and I. Yeah. I mean, I've been trapped in paradise in Mexico or Baja with you surfing, feeling that there was nothing for me to offer the community or that experience and knowing exactly what it's like to be that person who's the writer, a fish out of water, the one that can't surf in the middle of bumfuck nowhere doing nothing. And that's what's in All Tied Up. That's definitely the feeling in All Tied Up. Um, my favourite one, and you're talking about the music process. Can I just ask one more thing about All Tied Up? How did you feel about that premiering on the first episode of the new ABC TV show, The Sound, in the oh countdown time slot? I, I, I actually think, like, I couldn't have dreamed up a better conclusion if it was a film. Um, the kind of things I've had to sort of overcome in these last ten years a child uh, free-falling away from education into something that she may or may not have done well with but has, you know, she took the plunge. She said, I, I need to get away and go and into a very remote, independent life and create my own life. And she concluded at the end of that, and I would say it's possibly one of the most finest moments in parenting I think I've ever had, when she said after many years of struggling in school systems and she said, Mum, Dad... Now I actually do know that with or without you I will survive. And that was possibly one of the most powerful things I've ever heard as a parent. Um, my concerns during the writing of this album were all about her and, and I wrote in an effort to distract myself from feeling sucked in every day into the vortex of that horror of like what if she doesn't make it, what if we can't sustain this culture for her, where will she be, what sort of job will she have, we're just artists, what are we going to provide for her, you know, all that sort of stuff. This album really cured that for me. And then there's menopause, so you add all of those thoughts to what is existing history about menopause and that is that a woman's life changes. You know, the reproductive fertility of one's thoughts and mind and body are changed and altered at a certain time in a woman's life and there's a grieving to that as well. So I'm like... Jesus, I'm in a fucking barbed wire canoe with no paddle here. And that relates to what the fact that you're in your mid fifties okay. and suddenly that's you, what you're I was, getting a shot on this show. Well, that's why I say, as a movie, that's yeah. the, that's the premise of the film. You've got a the ingenue's no longer an ingenue. She's got a pop career, no longer a pop career. She's a parent, but her child has left home. She's hit menopause. She's down there. And if there was anyone going to be swinging from a rafter, I'd be a perfect candidate in that film. So cut to a record company discovers an unlistened to series of demos, realises that his underlings have passed on the project. It has gone into that kind of ether of unlistened to music, unspent songs, and suddenly 
COVID hits and he's actually not interested in touring, he's actually on the creative development team, comes across these unheard songs and goes, what the fuck is this? Well, Cut like, to well, yeah. a music show, the first in, in an absence of music shows in this country celebrating Australian music and he wants to premiere your original piece of work and you're in your fucking 50s. This is not a narrative that was ever meant to make it to film. For a female artist in their mid-50s, In Australia, sure. yeah. it was not going to happen. Yeah. It's only because, and if there was any silver lining to this COVID crisis, is that it's anyone's game. It's true. I'm going to add to that. The man on the white horse is Michael Grinsky, the um, Mushroom Records, Mushroom Group legend. And, and fact, a great believer and a great champion in Australian music. That, He's been so for that's right. over 45 years. That, that's right. Yeah, and in fact, the the album and the songs were released, and and to actually great critical acclaim. But having released it ourselves with right. sort of almost zero marketing budget, it didn't make much impact. So, in fact, Michael hadn't heard the record. You don't need to explain to our listeners. No, what no, happened. no, no. We're just talking but about when a narrative he heard it, to a movie. Like, this is a, this is amazing. So that's it how that came about. In fact, we're going to play that song right now. You know why? Because we can. <laughs> You've got me all 
Wow, how good is that song? Yeah, it's a um, an epic release for me because I notoriously have never enjoyed the recording process because I, I often feel um, a little shy about allowing myself that much volume or intensity. But because I was singing as a young male, I told you I wrote the whole album in this other character and I took full responsibility for the recording it. I was singing it as if I were a young male and the bellowing of that was I was entitled to that. And Rod, because he's got such a great trust in my instinct, he just would go, yeah, come on, more, more of that, more of that. And in my time I've had a lot of people say, less, less, less. Could you just tone it down a bit? Could you just be less, less? Rod Bustos, Rod who Bustos, co-produced he, co- he co-produced this album with me and, and was like a great mentor. We were mentors for each other actually. I, for him as a producer, just giving him the confidence to take me into that space and him as a style and creative director to help me discover what were the actual sounds that were created, what systems made that guitar sound, what were we looking at? Was it um, a Gretsch? What bass was it? The same one that Paul McCartney used and was it a chorus effect that they put on Bowie's pinups? You know, I mean, all these things, very, very important to the integrity of production and I'm, I really got across that. I really enjoyed it. But if I was going to have a soundtrack to The Times for me, it will be this track from this album in this time and forevermore, which is The Girl on the High Wire. Tell me about that song and why that one. Because it starts off with a scene with someone optimistically sort of um, strutting down the centre of town and you've got this idea there's a bit of a swagger in this person's walk, uh, hands are thrust in the coat and a little bit of a show pony until there's something within this song and the narrative that represents ridicule and it happens to anyone who's been famous. There'll be an opportunity for someone to have a go. I often think about like that day I watched that most horrendous video footage of Tom uh, being attacked on a red carpet by someone with an object with fluid that he didn't know what was happening or what was in it. It could have been battery acid and it was such a destructive and unkind gesture when Tom was there valiantly giving so much interest and affection to all the people in and on that carpet. Anyway, within the song there's this opportunity for ridicule and I've, I've experienced ridicule. I've felt ridiculous sometimes and known people were laughing or I'd walk out of a room and people would talk or, you know, for whatever reasons. It's just fame. It just is. It's one of the liabilities of fame. But then I recovered my own sense of dignity. I had a family, you know, I gave birth. I, I changed my mind about my value, my how irrelevant the body, the body bag is and got back to music again and recovered my grace. And in there it describes how we put all that shit on a bonfire and let all the criers, meaning the town criers, sing, hurrah, look, we've just built a fire and chucked all that shit on top of it. And now the girl, she's free to walk the wire. She needs no support. She needs no security. There's nothing underneath. She's fucking going to walk that high wire. And let's all praise her. Let's all sing in her honour. And the girl is free to walk the high wire. And I just loved it. I loved that whole imagery of it. And um, as it turns out, I happened to write a really fucking deep harmony for it and melody which I found to this day still haunts me because it's kind of tricky. It's not just your three chords written badly on an ill-played guitar. I feel like 
they were really considered and, yeah, it'll be quite myopic. I love it. Yeah, it's a beautiful record. What did Steve Kilby say to you when you first saw him after you'd met, after having written and created this album together? Oh, what did he say? I don't know. It was probably something like, you know what, Kate, you're not shit. You're really very good. So it was a surprise. <laughs> I'm not surprised that he was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and do you, and do you, actually, you, I love Steve Kilby. I, I'm completely besotted by him. He's got all the swagger anyone could ever want and he lives full rock and roll. He's a purist and I do admire and respect that. And um, he would never have had to have taken the commercial avenues to survive as I feel or felt I had to. Um, I have been the girl on the high wire. I've been the circus dog as well. And it seems he's been none of those things. So all hail the Kilby. <laughs> and then, then Sean Sennett, what a wonderful other part of the narrative, um, interviewee to some of the greatest artists that have or ever been. Sorry, I meant to say interviewer and known and trusted. So he's been selected and handpicked by Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, David Bowie as their preferred journalist to do the first reviews on all of their albums. I mean, that kind of kudos comes because there's a great deal of support and trust and his intelligence allows us, both Steve and I, to have a witness. So our work is not just like a fart in the dark. Yeah, I think Sean did an incredible job of bringing you two together and bringing the best out in you. And I think Sean, for a long time, has regarded you as one of the truly great Australian songwriters and wanted to see you respected as such, mm. if I could say that. Totally. I, I get that feeling. I had a great conversation it's like with him. I feel like I've had a friend all my life who keeps seeing me do these incredible gymnastic feats in the forest going, why aren't you fucking getting on television? Why are you not Why are you not putting that on Instagram? Why isn't anyone paying you to do And, you know, and you're just doing it because it's fun. But the minute the camera's placed on you, it seems that I wasn't able to do the flips and the high death-defying triple, you know. Like I have to say I kept feeling I was letting him down because – he would say over the 20 years of knowing him, Kate, just do that and that'll be perfect, you know, and it just, yeah. I don't know. Oh, he's a great songwriter in his own right, isn't he? he is. I, one of the things he said to me that really resonated was nobody lands a lyric like Kate Sobrano. I couldn't even say your name then. But <laughs> <laughs> Kate Rogers, Kate, that's Kate, why. Kate Rogers. Yeah, I love that. Nobody lands a lyric like you. And I'd have to agree. You can zip in and out of genres, but you seem to have an ability to understand a lyric and no matter if we've heard, you know, a hundred versions of that classic standard before, you seem to be able to interpret it and sing it and make it your own seemingly quite effortlessly. Do you know that there's a myriad of opportunities in my life every day that I have an opportunity to lie, either socially, respectfully, or just outright lie. And I do. I take all those opportunities. Um, if I'm being polite to someone and so they say, does this look good? Yes, it looks fantastic on you. I'd rather do that than harm them with the truth. Does someone say, um, I don't know, how do you feel about uh, blah, blah, blah in the sea of this political rife? Well, I'll choose the high road because I don't want to upset or be polarising. But with a song, if the song is written well, it's impossible for me not to tell the truth in a song. Like for some reason the strength of a song keeps me on the straight and narrow and I've never been able to lie singing a song. Wow. I'd rather that just not sing it at all and you'll find you've heard me. 
I'm actually sometimes quite bullheadish. And in fact, I had one of the A&R guys saying recently, oh, you can never be told. <laughs> and it's true. I just can't sing shit if I don't actually own it and don't really, it's the worst of the method acting, I think, in me. <laughs> <laughs> when you're, I mean, you get asked all the time, oh, can you deliver singing lessons? And, you know, I want to be mentored by you and, and that kind of thing. Is that something you can teach that ability or where do you go with that? I'm in the middle of having to consider how that could feel. Like I do always want to share experiences. Like I've had three students that I've been mentoring since they were 15 and they're now in their late 20s and it's uh, a gentle thing. It's a gentle living, breathing occupation. It's not one that I can necessarily put a value to and it's not one that I can necessarily do on cue. If someone were to sit down and say, I've got an hour, give me your best. So on the one hand, it's something I'm deeply interested in. On the other hand, I would have to probably be very, very selective in order to do it well because I'd be expecting and demanding to see that the person was applying whatever I had to tell them into something that actually was something that they felt really strong about. That makes sense. No dilettantes because I don't want people who are half good at everything. You know, I've been that and it's, and it's a fucking awful place to live. Don't be half good at anything. Just do what you do really, really well and the thing you do best, that thing that you do best and it's so easy for you to do, just do that and you'll win. And then when you get into a position where, hey, yeah, you've made all the money you wanted in the world, you've got all of the stability, raising families, blah, 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 then get hobbies. But don't be a dilettante at life. If you could give any piece of advice to kids, particularly kids leaving school and and wondering is there a future worth having? What should I do? Should I work hard? Should I get a job? Should I try? Can I fulfill my dreams? Is it worth even bothering or should I just give up? It's all hopeless. What would you say to kids right now? I would say try to discover the plane that your mind, your own mind through literature can give you and start reading because I think have you ever had that feeling when you're on social media or something where you had a thought and then for some reason a picture flipped over into another space and you went, what was I thinking of a second ago? I had to do something. And I'm thinking that this is actually accumulating and it's more regular phenomena for everyone. I think your own thoughts are being erased by the artificial thoughts we're being offered every day. And so the exercise of training your mind and exercise of training your ability, you know, that ability to create that thought, that comes from actual like reading. It comes from listening to great orators really from history talking about the way conditions were and and how they resolved them, listening to elders, you know, really, really listening to people who've done things in their lives and not just say, oh, you're just simply old, I'm not interested, I want to do it myself, but in fact open your heart and your head to listening to elders. I sat and listened and worked with a lot of older people all of my life and I harvested them for their information and their experience. And I thought, well, if I'm not going to live that experience, I'm going to write about it as if I did live it because Joe left as a legacy the story of meeting his wife during, you know, the World War when they were on a train off to a – hi – Got a, got, a, got a puppy running around the living room <laughs> this here. This is hilarious. What, darling? Did you want to say something? What did you want to say? Wow. Hi. 
We're nearly done. Just, just a, uh, I think one more question. Thanks. That's that, it. That, thanks for sharing that. That that was cool. Yeah, because I do. I I feel and worry for the kids right now that it is such a difficult time. So, some words of wisdom and inspiration from you for for well, any my words teenagers that are that, out there listening that would be appreciated. So that's uh, why I wanted to ask. Well, that. it's actually more to the carers of teenagers. Right. Be better. Work harder. Take yeah. less time concerning your own needs. Right. And if you're tired and exhausted, we'll get tireder, get more exhausteder. Just be better and interest your children into discovering things about their life that can't be found on a phone. Yep. Keep them busy, keep them productive, keep their morale up. Keep and, them, yeah. And, yeah. Keep them exchanging with the world around them. You know, make mud pies. Yep. Go and um, dirty the lounge room floor in an effort to do it. Yeah. And don't scold them for it. Like, I mean, come on, let's just go back to 1950s and this is basic here for a bit. Get the kids going out and. Bit of good old fashioned common sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's cool. Thanks. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite song? Oh, I don't you, know. Of songs you've written. <laughs> you've written a lot of songs. Oh, I don't know. That's do you my have least a, favorite you... question. You can nix that one. I just, it's like, I just like choosing your favorite child. Can I tell you which is my favorite song? Of course. I'm much more interested in what pleases you than me. To think we nearly didn't do this. I know, of course, darling. Our beautiful life. Yeah. Don't cry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> can you just, you don't have to sing it, can you just read us a line or two out of that song? Um, wake up when you're feeling rested. Dress up for the day like it's your birthday. Hey, what the hell? Nobody knows. Who cares if you lay your hand upon the Buddha's head each time you close the door? I know you're not that superstitious. You just think he's kind of cool. We could uh, we could just pretend we're two jumbo jets and take off flying way up high. Or maybe we could change our minds if you prefer and take a rocket ride to the sky or the stars, whatever. I tend to make it up as I go along. But the chorus is beautiful life, beautiful life. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your beautiful life with me. (laughs) Don't. You're so going to make me cry. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the blank canvas, darling. (laughs) Have fun, darling. Good luck with it all. I'm really excited for you. I think it's a great thing. To one of the greatest listeners I've ever had the pleasure of knowing my whole life. Thanks, honey. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Blank Canvas. As you can see, Kate's a dream conversationalist and luckily for me, one I still enjoy chatting to after nearly 30 years together. I'm a lucky man, what can I say? If you'd like to hear Kate's music, it's available from the usual music platforms and retailers or visit her website, katesabrano.com. That's Kate Sabrano, C-E-B-E-R-A-N-O.com. The song we played during the show was from the album The Dangerous Age. The link and those for her social media are in the show notes. Reviews and ratings on your podcast platform really help build the audience, so don't hold back, folks. Next week's guest is Anne McEvitt, serial entrepreneur and powerhouse business advisor. Her story blew my mind, so definitely check it out. Until then, have a great week and live large. 
The song, All Tied Up, is off the Dangerous Age album by Kate Soberano, Steve Kilby and Sean Sennett. The Blank Canvas is produced by me, Rin MacDonald, audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production. Production.